Welcome to the Politics Pulse, where we get perspectives on politics, government, and current events from inside Washington and beyond. We're produced by WKXL and podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. I'm Matt Robeson, and our guest today is an outstanding expert in both perspectives inside Washington and outside. She's Sarah Ovaska, associate editor of Cardinal and Pine. She's a veteran investigative journalist based in North Carolina, and she's been doing a ton of reporting on voting, healthcare coverage, and COVID. Sarah, welcome to Politics Pulse. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here and talking to you and your listeners. I am really excited to have you because I'm really looking forward to kind of getting that outside and inside the Beltway. Paul, so let's jump right in. You've done a lot of reporting on voter access, voter suppression through the lens of what's been happening in North Carolina, a very closely contested state at the presidential and Senate level. Um, What does that look like? How has that voter access versus voter suppression, and uh, I hate to adopt Uh, the nomenclature of the Trump campaign, but potentially voter fraud been looking from your perspective there. Right. So um, in looking at this past election here in North Carolina, we like, like many places had record turnout. We had essentially three quarters, 75% of our registered voters um, turn up at the polls or mail in their votes this year. And that sounds very well and good. Um, but we, what we did find out this election year is that it, there was still a lot of struggle for people to, to cast their ballots this year. Um, I, I did a, a fair bit of reporting. And, and one issue that I hadn't thought about on, on at first blush, but, but made sense upon hearing it, is that folks in um, nursing homes that um, in, in settings like that really faced a lot more barriers than normal um, voting this year um, because of the pandemic. We, we, all, we all face challenges, but there were a lot of challenges that people had because of kind of the particulars of our state rules. We have a rule on the book that, that nursing, that if you need, you need a witness to sign your, your absentee by mail ballot. But you, um, we had a law in the books that said that um, nursing home staff couldn't be that person. Um, and in, in normal times, you know, your family comes in, they, they help you get your ballot and it, it's on its way, but that wasn't the case this year. Um, so I, I know when, when we get kind of the more detailed numbers, um, I'm looking to see kind of how that population was affected. And if, if we saw kind of drop off in, the, in that usually very reliable um, block of voters. We also saw kind of some more um, egregious examples. I in particular was at a get out the vote rally in Alamance County, which is a county kind of in our state's midsection in between Greensboro and Raleigh, um, where it, it's known for a lot of racial tension. There's been um, a lot of antagonism towards black and Latino residents in the past. And the get out, get out the vote march, which was essentially backed by a number of Black Lives Matter groups um, ended when the local police forces basically whipped out the pepper spray pepper sprayed a crowd that included elderly folks, um, children, um, people with disabilities, um, and thereby preventing those folks from making it to an early voting site that was a couple blocks away. So that's, wow. yeah, yeah. That's, that is pretty distressing. Did, did those kinds of issues continue to play out as you hit election day itself? Because one of the big concerns in the run-up to the election was that we would see 
greater, more aggressive efforts to engage police presence, not in a supportive way, but perhaps in a uh, in an underhanded way, um, to to create a, a, an atmosphere of intimidation, and of course. The Republican Party has been freed from a 1982 consent decree since uh, 2018 that used to put a damper on on that kind of thing, on on these more aggressive, intimidating efforts to try to uh, limit the vote, especially uh, in black uh, majority voting precincts. How did how did this kind of dynamic play out on the ground on Election Day itself? Right. So I think um, we didn't hear of widespread incidents of suppression. I think, you know, the the challenges of of, um, pinpointing suppression is that it's 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 difficult in more rural communities to to really um, have that documented and have it be shown. Um, we did, though, however, in the same county. So I spent the day, election day, out in that same county where we saw those issues. And when I was there at one, so the same group came out and was holding essentially a walk to the polls, um, a silent walk to the polls around this, this small town, um, basically supporting people's right to vote. And probably about a thousand, maybe 2,000 people came out, um, really, which are really extraordinary numbers considering the pandemic and it's a small town, a small area, all that. Um, And when I was there, I was outside one of the main polling places and out of nowhere, three cops show up and um, essentially are we took over the spots that we, that were being used for curbside voting, which is where, you know, people were able to pull up and vote if they wish to on the curbside. And there, there was no explanation of why they were there. It's, it's certainly against the rules that our state board of elections um, had put out and what um, voting rights experts recommend. Um, so that's one incident that occurred. Um, we didn't hear a lot of widespread issues, but I, I think these tactics in these events are still very much a challenge, certainly in the South where I'm in at, as in elsewhere. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it sounds, it sounds like maybe I'm going to, you know, 2020 has sort of conditioned me to put a negative spin on just about everything in our lives, but maybe if there's a a, a positive spin to be put on the, the kind of on the ground reporting that you do, which by the way, is so essential and we're losing in our country and losing in our democracy. So thank you for doing it. If there, if there's a positive view on this, it's that it sounds like the, the kinds of things that analysts were stressing about in the run-up to the election did indeed happen, but were pretty scattershot. Um, there, there was not, as far as I've seen in the, in the post-election uh, uh, summaries, there, there was not a coordinated large-scale effort to suppress the vote in places like North Carolina with the kinds of intimidation, uh, loss of access, ultra-long lines that we were seeing in some of the early voting in states like Georgia. Um, and maybe, you know, on the flip side of the coin, if we want to be fair, um, it's sort of the same story with all the Giuliani vote rigging uh, arguments that we've been hearing. You know, yes, you, you can find a handful of mishaps here and there, but absolutely nothing large scale. It seems like overall the election pretty much went off smoothly. Is that, is that your take on it or, or did you see yeah. deeper issues? No, you know, I think it did go smoothly. It might not have gone the way that, um, you know, Democrats might have wanted in our state and our state um, essentially Democrats did not do well. We saw um, Republicans kind of take the ticket for the, for the, with the exception of the um, gubernatorial position, but you know, it went, it went considering 
all the challenges, it went fairly smoothly. Um, I did not, we did not see very long lines except for our first day of early vote and our last day of early vote, which is when we, we always see long lines on those days. And we, we have a 17 day early voting period in the state. Um, and I mean, people were able to get out there and vote and people, I, I you know, they were able to do it easily. And, and so I do think that, there is a success story in that, that even, you know, despite the pandemic and all these challenges that people were able to vote. Um, a lot of people, I think half of the ballots in, our, in my state, and I think that holds through nationally, were able to vote by mail, um, which is pretty extraordinary um, that, that there was such a rapid shift to this, form of, to this method of voting that, that we hadn't seen before. Well, that is encouraging. And I do want to follow up with you. Let, let's, let's just bookmark that thought about the 17-day early voting window and some of the reforms that have been called for from both left and right. Um, but I just, I just want to circle back for a second to what you were raising about the outcome in North Carolina. Bears a lot of similarities to what we saw in New Hampshire, where at the very top of the ticket, Joe Biden prevailed, and then down ballot was a real washout for Democrats, um, really strong ascendant um, uh, position for Republicans. And it sounds like a similar story, of course, in the uh, Senate race in North Carolina, which was a great disappointment to Democrats nationally. Um, what's your perspective on the big question of why? Why did Joe Biden prevail, but further down the ticket, it was harder for Democrats to gain traction? Right. So we, so North Carolina went for Trump. Um, we, we were, oh. we were, yeah, we were a Trump state. So we were, interestingly, Trump won the top of the ticket here. Um, but our governor, Roy Cooper is a Democrat and he won and very high margins. Um, and after that, it was all Republicans. So it really, Roy Cooper was really an aberration for us. The, um, the U.S. Senate race between um, incumbent Tom Tillis, Republican, who who held onto a seat um, over Cal Cunningham was was closer, but um, it was much. Democrats had gone into this really thinking that this was going to be their election. They thought that um, they were going to win our, our state legislature back, um, which they've um, haven't had control of for a decade. Um, and Republicans were able to hold on to the leads in our state. Um, you know, it, it's a bit, we, I, I would say the takeaway is that I think that people are, it's just a much more purple place than we thought, um, or that, that we did believe. I think those of us that are, that are in these states, these swing states kind of recognize these kind of split personalities that people will have, you know, vote, you know, Republican here, Democrat here and split their tickets. Um, but it, it's just a place where, where people really mix up their politics and they're not one party or another party. Um, oh, that's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, so I guess I had it backwards there because in <laughs> Hampshire, it was, uh, it was the very popular in yeah. governor, Chris Sununu holding on for a third term. And, you know, really uh, wiping out the, the Democratic nominee, Dan Feltis, uh, but Biden prevailing at the top of the ticket. And I, I'm just right. always so interested in these kinds of states in this day and age where our politics is supposed to be driven by these tribal negative partisanship tendencies. It is interesting that there are still states that, and the states that seem to be making the difference makers in the Senate and, and the presidency. Yeah. There are swing voters and, and there's ticket splitters and you can get voters to um, go either way. And it seems like for one reason or another, Democrats are really struggling to 
get voters to consistently go their way in states like New Hampshire and North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, they, they certainly are struggling. Um, and, and part of it, I think we saw a lot of voters, um, as you got further down the ballot, they dropped off, you know, that let's get those top ones, let's fill out, you know, who I want for president, who I want for Senate, and who I want for governor. And then you get into a lot more obscure races. Um, you know, in our state, we had a lot of our statewide labor commissioner, things like that. Our judicial races are on the ballot. Um, you know, and that's not where everyday folks spend a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, kind of in, in who to choose for a statewide judicial position. And it's a hard one for voters to figure it out, especially as we have, um, you know, a media landscape. Um, you know, sir, I, I cannot tell you how many ads I heard, <laughs> presidential ads, and it's hard for anyone else other than kind of the, the top ticket races to get a word in edgewise in, in these markets. Um, so it's a real challenge. How do, you, how do you reach voters in this very fractured media landscape, especially when we're seeing um, statewide and local media be really decimated and continue to be decimated? So I do wanna circle back to the point you were making earlier about the fact that North Carolina has a 17 day early voting window. And it sort of connects to an article that I wrote last week, picking up on a suggestion, a set of reforms that come from a writer on the right. I'm a little bit more center left. He said, look, we should institute the following four reforms in order to get a little bit more balance in how we do voting and uh, recognize Republican concerns. We should have a uniform two-week early voting window everywhere in America. And in fact, we should have uniform administration of elections all across America, which would mean probably creating a federal elections agency to, to make things a little bit more even-handed. In exchange for uniform early in-person voting, he proposes that we by and large get rid of all of this expanded vote by mail that we've had this year. And he also suggests uh, uniform but lenient voter ID requirements. And um, uh, what's your take on uh, these kinds of reforms? I, I suggested that, you know, as much as we have conclusively proven through deep reporting and analysis that there is no systemic voter fraud, there is no vote rigging, right. Giuliani and his ilk are absolutely crazy, bonkers uh, about all the stuff they're claiming. At a certain point, we have to recognize that half of the country has a concern here and maybe it's time to deal with the world the way it is. What, what do you think in terms of some of the trade-offs in, in that article um, about trying to reform voter purging methods and uniform voter ID and uh, trying to find a balance there? Is, there? is there any sense in this or from your perspective where, where you sit, uh, would it ultimately work against voter interests? Well, I think one of the, I think the more clarity you can bring to this process, the better. Um, I think the the voting process is, is still pretty confusing for um, for your kind of less regular voters. It's still, you know, we, we currently at this 2020 election in North Carolina, we did not have voter ID. Um, there, there's been a lot of litigation and we just found out post the election, it's coming back. It looks like it's coming back for the next election. Um, but it, it's that question this back and forth and the voters get confused through all this. So, you know, if there were kind of a national federal, you know, this is how we do elections in the US. Um, I, I mean, I see that 
as a as a win, you know, if it's if it's simple and it's it's a process that encourages people, more people to vote in it with as few barriers as possible. Um, you know, that seems like what this whole, you know, experiment in democracy is supposed to be about. Um, it seems like a good thing. I mean, I will say that I think a lot of people found the absentee um, voting process, which or voting by mail um, to be really easy and really beneficial this year, especially. And um, I think it'll be curious if we see what happens going forward. Um, we've been a state in North Carolina. Um, we're a big military state. We've got some pretty big military bases here, um, Fort Bragg um, and Camp Lejeune, as we say it, um, that we're the, we're the Marine Corps. Um, is, that, is, is that how you pronounce that correctly? It is, it is no, yes. Lejeune is is the way that, that wow. it, it needs to be pronounced. And there's a whole long backstory um, about how it's Lejeune is how folks have been saying it, but that's actually incorrect. So Lejeune, you heard it here first. Lejeune. Wow, you have heard um, it here first. Yeah, <laughs> um, although anyone who served at, at in, in um, the Marines probably already knows that. But anyway, that's all to say that that was a lot of the, the military population, um, given that um, these are also um, from those two bases are folks that are deployed a lot. There was a really big emphasis in having a very long and very lenient absentee mailing process. Um, and so that North Carolina, we were actually the first state to send out um, ballots by mail and, um, and a lot of people did it. And, and there were very few issues. I think September 5th was when ballots started going out and we had, like I said, about 50% of the state's voters opted to do it by mail. And it seemed to go pretty well. I mean, there, there were some people, some votes that you didn't get the, the, the witness signature correct. And um, people from the parties had to go out and, and do cure it essentially, you know, to be able to get voters to sign off on it. And yes, is how I intended to but you know to me it just seems like it's an easy way to do it um and then i would say the early voting process itself i i think has been it is quite useful to people mm. it's, it's i mean when i voted i did i i stood in line maybe two minutes and i cast my ballot and i walked out i mean it almost felt like i, I wish there was more fanfare you know I, it's i i thought about it was a, a list of errands I had that day. I voted and then I, you know, went to the grocery store and I spent much longer in the grocery store in line than I did voting. Well, that's the way um, it should be. You know, yeah. I, I would, I could talk with you about uh, your insights on voting in elections literally all day, but I, I don't want to let you get out of here without talking about a little bit of, of, at least of some of your other reporting. You've done a lot of work uh, on COVID um, and okay. some of the interactions with uh, government healthcare policy. And, uh, you know, you pointed out to me as we were going back and forth before this show that North Carolina is one of the 12 states without expanded Medicaid. And right. that is really hurting uh, the hospitals, the healthcare systems, and of course, the people um, who are lacking health insurance. What's the situation like? there in North Carolina. So this is one, this is probably the biggest loss that Democrats in the state had. Um, they really thought with a lot of the polling numbers in the state has been in favor of Medicaid expansion in the state. They really thought that they were going to be able to re regain control of the state legislature and therefore put expansion through. Um, didn't work out that way. So we're, we're trying to see if there is kind of any wiggle room, but it, it's been, a, it's a pretty, I would say for folks that 
don't have access to health care, it's a pretty desperate situation. Um, our more rural areas of the state, um, where higher proportions of uninsured people live, um, are really hurting. Um, you know, very, very much in having. You know, we've had a lot of rural hospitals close. Um, people are having to tra travel further for care, and then, um, you know, and especially now with COVID, all of our hospitals are filling up. Um, and so I think there's a real question about what, what of our healthcare infrastructure is going to be standing at the end of this, not even, you know, to say the point that, you know, the more people go without healthcare access, you know, you're going to have um, preventable health conditions are, are going to turn into very major conditions, um, looking at people's livelihoods. So the, right now we do have our governor, our governor's trying to re-engage conversations with the Republican legislature um, and being able to see, you know, is there a way to expand healthcare coverage um, without going Medicaid expansion? I think there's a lot of skepticism about this, about, you know, what, what you know, what, is this just going to be Medicaid expansion light or something like this? But I think that there's a lot of people that are at the point that are saying something's got to give because, um, you know, with the economic crisis that's been brought on by the pandemic, we saw as, as a lot of, I think, in, in non-Medicaid expansion states saw um, the numbers of uninsured adults just, just shot through the roof. And man, talk about a time where you don't want to have more people without healthcare access, um, you know, a, a pandemic, you know, that the worst public health crisis our country has ever seen. And now we're seeing even more people without access to healthcare. I think it's a pretty frightening place to be. Um, and it's, it's a real struggle, I think, for, to find the way to do this, to make this happen politically right now. Mm. Well, I, you couldn't be more right. And I can tell you that, you know, after I, I was a staffer in, in Congress for, for many years, I actually ended up as a staffer in the New Hampshire State Senate at the time that we were considering expanded Medicaid in New Hampshire. And we went through quite a process. There, there was uh, quite a negotiation between the parties and we ended up doing it. And, uh, I, you know, I personally, I mean, obviously I, I didn't have a vote on this. I was a staffer, um, but, you know, I got to work in the background on it. Uh, I worked my tail off on it and just having a hand, just having uh, some kind of a role in getting that to pass and expanding affordable health care to tens of thousands of people in the state. One of the proudest things I ever did and really important across this country. Sarah Vasca, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Great insights. We hope you come back. Yep, absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you. Very pleased to be joined today once again by Elle Myers, a congressional reporter for Courier who covers national politics and is an alumni, alumna of the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication and is also a noted hot sauce enthusiast. Elle, welcome back. Thanks so much, Matt. I'm happy to be here. You have been covering some really interesting stories. Um, I, one that really caught my eye was that recently uh, the Secretary of Education, uh, DeVos, uh, was giving a speech, a sort of a farewell address to the career employees of the Department of Education, uh, who she's frequently clashed with, by the way, and uh, saying that she's expecting them to, quote, be the resistance against the incoming Democratic administration. You wrote about this. Why is she telling Department of Education career professionals to resist? What is she telling them to resist? What's going on with this? Sure. So that story came out of a recording of this all hands meeting that they had at, you know, the Department of Education. Um, and from what 
I was understanding, you know, from, from DeVos's history, you know, she has this real track record of sort of pivoting her back and turning her back away from public schools. You know, she's a big proponent of private schools, of charter schools, of school, of the school voucher system. And it seemed to me that, you know, if she was thinking that the Biden administration is going to come in and pivot that back, that they're going to, you know, send money to public schools and resources in a way that, you know, we saw in the past that, you know, if she had her way, she would want the, you know, career bureaucrats within the Department of Education to resist that change. Is there a sense that this plea to resist any changes that the Biden administration might be looking to make to her policies, is this the kind of thing that based on what we know of, of career uh, public servants at the Department of Education that they're likely to listen to? Or have the career staff there not fully been on board with the Betsy DeVos direction? And I should make a distinction for our listeners here that in the federal agencies, there are political appointees like the secretary, like Betsy DeVos. Um, but then there's a vast and extremely important layer uh, under those political appointees who are career staff who are supposed to be nonpartisan, who are really making the gears turn. And they're the people who are executing on all of these policies. So is, is her plea to resist the Biden administration's policies likely to be listened to? You know, my thinking is that it probably won't be, right? I mean, the the bureaucrats that are, that are within the Department of Education and have been there for, you know, 20, 30 years are sort of at least a little bit insulated from the political appointees. They feel a little less political pressure to toe, you know, the Republican or Democratic line. So my thinking is that they'll probably keep keep on keeping on, basically. Um, you know, I I think the the plea that she made was sort of telling. I think she could see the writing on the wall that the work that she has done in the past has been, you know deeply controversial. And like you said, she has really clashed with these people who, you know, work their long term, you know, they're, they're not temporary. Um, so my thinking is that we probably will see a change. And I'm not super confident that we're going to see a whole lot of resisting, at least, you know, that's my optimistic hope. So, of course, you referred to some of the controversies of Secretary DeVos's tenure. Um, could you just remind our listeners and me uh, with my uh, increasing short-term memory loss uh, in 2020, which I think is getting worse for everybody. Uh, <laughs> it's not just the people who are actually suffering from COVID. I think it's all of us who are you know, cloistered in our houses. Um, so what are some of those highlights or, or lowlights of Secretary DeVos's tenure that have been so controversial? Sure, absolutely. So I was actually looking for a couple of highlights for you. I tried and I tried and I couldn't find any. So, but I do have a couple of, um, of lowlights for you. So one of the major things that stuck out to me from her, her time um, in her position, it was her changes to Title IX um, and specifically the one that allows accused rapists for you know, college um, you know, rape trials, basically. It allows the accuser to cross-examine the person who's accusing them. Um, and I think that's problematic for a host of reasons, um, but mainly because, you know, a, a, a college trial isn't like a trial in a regular courtroom. You know, that seems like that could be potentially sort of damaging. Um, and then another thing that really stuck out to me that was really surprising was her slowing down of investigations into for-profit education institutions. So the ones that stand out are like ITT Tech, DeVry University, and um, Bridgeport Education. 
um, you know, they create these like institutions that are basically in mall parking lots. Um, they advertise, you know, these programs that you can get a degree in nine months, 18 months, something that's a lot shorter than the typical four years for a bachelor's degree. And then it seems sort of like they take money from students and then they don't really give them the education that they promised. And so what we saw at the Department of Education, which is often tasked with um, investigating these claims, is that DeVos seemed to have no interest in actually investigating and enforcing um, any sort of consequences. And, you know, we actually saw Kamala Harris, um, you know, in her earlier days deal with similar things. You know, as a prosecutor, she was tasked with um, investigating these, um, these claims. And so it was really interesting to see that not happen at the Department of Education. Right. Absolutely. So it seems like uh, potentially big changes coming with the Biden administration and uh, not likely an uprising of a resistance uh, within this professional staff at that agency. Let's take a look at another uh, really fascinating story that that you wrote up and you based your reporting uh, in part on a story that broke in the New York Times uh, around uh, Kyle McGowan, a former chief of staff within the Centers for Disease Control, uh, and his deputy, Amanda Campbell, explaining how political and economic considerations from the White House often took precedence over science. And you were detailing how there was what seemed to be political interference coming from the very highest levels of the US government over the materials that were being put out by the lead scientists in charge of our response to the pandemic. Uh, so what was going on there? Right, yeah. So this was a really interesting story and I think it really showed the sheer grip the Trump administration had over the CDC for the first time you know, ever for an administration. So Kyle McGowan was a chief of staff within the CDC and then Amanda Campbell was his deputy. Um, and they went into the agency as relatively young, um, young in their, in their position, basically in their positions. Um, and so when they came out of it in the last few months, when they, they left their post to start their own consulting firm, um, the reports that they were showing was that there was a real shift within the CDC um, of a real politicalization. You know, all of a sudden there was, um, you know, more influence from Trump from the Trump administration itself, from, you know, his surrogates, um, which was really, really concerning, especially given the situation that, you know, the U.S. and the rest of the world is in right now. Is it true that Ivanka Trump and Kellyanne Conway, uh, White House uh, communications advisor, got personally involved in trying to alter or uh, tweak some of the scientific information that was coming forward from the CDC? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so what was sort of weird about that is that, you know, under any other circumstances, the, the guidelines that the CDC um, implements are pretty nonpartisan, right? They have to do with health. They don't have to do with politics. But now all of a sudden, because public health is so intertwined in, you know, opening schools, opening businesses, in the economy, all of a sudden their guidelines had a really big impact on things that the Trump administration was, you know, trying to push or to, to to deny. So what we saw with Ivanka Trump was she was really pushing for schools to reopen, um, which comes with a whole host of issues. You know, the first one being that the federal government didn't really allocate that much money to help 
teachers prevent sickness in themselves. You know, we saw shower curtains used as PPE. Um, and so, so all of a sudden there was this real influence and this real shift um, that made everything that the CDC was doing political in a way that we haven't seen before. Well, of course, this week, your reporting and analysis got a further boost with the release of a letter from Jim Clyburn, the third ranking uh, member of the U.S. House of Representatives, who has been pushing um, to uh, get further information on the types of activities that you were highlighting in your article. He outlined in his uh, letter that was released this week, 13 scientific reports on the coronavirus that um, Trump appointees had attempted to alter or block. And it looks like there was a recurring pattern here of the highest levels of the Trump administration trying to basically tweak what their own science agencies were saying to line up on hydroxychloroquine, wearing masks, as you say, opening schools, to line up with what President Trump was saying. Now, of course, you know that all administrations, of course, try and put their best spin, their their uh, you know the best version that lines up with the line of the president forward into the public. That's not that unusual, but it sounds like you're suggesting that what happened here isn't the standard. You know, let's let's make things line up, let's all row in the same direction, let's all spread the same message here. That happens in in every operation out there. You're saying that it went a lot deeper, and it it sounds like Jim Clyburn is saying the same thing. Yes, absolutely. So that was my sense for sure that that they crossed a real line all of a sudden. And I think maybe that line was more clear now because we're living through a pandemic. You know, altering things had a very, very real impact on people's lives, on people's health. Um, so one thing that actually sprung to mind and um, one thing that I think you're also referring to is the uh, morbidity reports that come out weekly from the CDC. Um, all of a sudden there was sort of a push to change the, the language, change the messaging in there um, to, to be more in line with the president. But the thing, the thing there is that if it's inaccurate, if it's not truthful, um, that makes it less likely to be trusted by the American people, which to me, I think is the largest, the largest danger behind a loss of life. Have there been any indications that some of these CDC guidelines or reports uh, or the information that our hospitals and medical providers rely on from the Centers for Disease Control, that any of these tweaks, these alterations, these trying to toe the party line uh, may have had uh, an actual impact on people's health? Is that is that is there evidence behind that? Are there kind of common sense uh, uh, takeaways that that we can draw from what happened here? Mm -hmm. So, without you know real solid data, and you know since we're still within, I mean, twenty twenty has felt like twenty years long, right? But we're 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 still in the year. You know, we don't have data to to show that you know one guideline made a definite impact just yet. We don't have the data for that. But I think the common sense things um, is that we can see a real impact on. Um, people's perception of the virus and their trust in government. And so one thing that really, really stuck out to me was that if, if the American people can't trust the very agency that is tasked with information, with science, um, if all of that is sort of undermined by people higher up in the government, where do people turn? the internet, right? And social media sites, you know, all of a sudden, the, the rise of misinformation um, has just been so incredible this last year, you know, all of a sudden, 
people think that peppermint oil is going to, you know, prevent you from getting the, you know, the coronavirus, and that's just not the case. So I think the the real danger in undermining these agencies is obviously loss of life. That's number one. But I think the second and more lagging measure is that the spread of misinformation makes trust in government a whole lot harder. Well, keeping on the coronavirus theme, you wrote up a really fascinating story. It's sort of a mix of a, a feel good and a maybe not feel so good uh, about how uh, local people and local communities, I, I guess I should say, banded together through GoFundMe campaigns to keep restaurants open in their communities, a diner in Portland, a tavern in Atlanta. Uh, what was that story about? Sure. So actually that story sort of came out of my own scrolling through my own social media. You know, I, I kept seeing these GoFundMe um, campaigns for local businesses, for restaurants, um, for individual people as well. Um, and so in doing that story um, and some research, it all of a sudden became very clear and probably already was clear to be fair. It's just that my brain is a fog. Um, that the restaurant industry has been hit incredibly hard. Um, you know, from March to June, um, the restaurant industry lost like a total of $120 billion in revenue. Um, and that was just the first three months of the pandemic. You know, since then, we've seen a really, a really heartening push to keep these places open. Um, but I, I think the thing that is sort of sad about it too, is that instead of looking to elected officials, instead of looking to the federal government, these wonderful home diners and taverns all of a sudden have to turn to their communities, you know, and they're asking for five, 10, $15 in donations just so they can keep the lights on. Yeah, that's what I, I really struck me about reading the story is that on the one hand, it sort of had a George H.W. Bush quality of a thousand points of light to it, right? This idea of communities coming together to try and support these institutions. Look, restaurants are part of the fabrics of the communities we live in. And, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to have enough income to be able to go to restaurants, it's, it, you know, it's part of what we do. It's part of how we live our lives. And of course, you know, these are important anchor employers in a lot of small communities, but it also kind of shines a spotlight as you're suggesting on the fact that there's been to some degree a failure of public policy here, right? But there was an original $120 billion fund that was intended to support restaurants has fallen by the wayside in this latest round of COVID relief that's just coming together this week in Washington. Uh, and you know what we're hearing around this latest round of COVID relief is that uh, the, the industry associations that represent restaurants say that it is woefully, woefully inadequate uh, providing about eight weeks, uh, or I guess they're getting a special provision, so it's more like 12 weeks of income support if they keep employees on the payrolls, whereas most restaurants are foreseeing being out of business and no return to normal for at least six months. So what do you make uh, of the gap here? Is this more of a feel-bad story or about public policy or a feel-good story about communities? You know, it's almost... 50-50, you know, I think it's it's a little bit sunny with some clouds and rain a little bit, you know, these restaurants were able to to turn to their communities, right, but they also shouldn't have to, um, and I think the, the thing about the previous aid packages is that some of them helped, 
but then some of them didn't. And really, I think the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, which was kind of a, a great idea, an awesome idea, it helped the businesses that were already able to help themselves. You know, often even multi-million dollar businesses got a ton of money to keep their their doors open when really maybe they didn't need that much money. Um, so the diner that I featured in the story, Fat City Cafe, is super, super small. I mean, in space and then also in staff. Um, and the owner there was telling me that she got like maybe five grand to, you know, keep people on, but that's not really enough for, for food and to keep gas and lights and rent, um, which is like so, so sad. <laughs> in reporting this out, did you get a sense from the restaurant owners that you spoke with? And obviously this is, you know, gathering a few leaves in order to describe the, the forest, but that's, that's what reporting is. Did you get the sense that they feel that if they can make it through this next six months, this kind of long tunnel, we're finally being able to see light at the end of it, that they are going to come out the other side? Because there's been a lot of uh, speculation in, in the last couple of weeks that we really could be heading for a very economically dynamic 2021 with a lot of pent up demand. There's a lot of pent up household savings. People seem to be ready to come back out of their houses, um, go out to restaurants again. Is that is that the feeling that these small business owners have or are they feeling a little bit more like they're just not going to make it? You know, I think I think yes, but with a caveat, you know, getting past these next six months, getting a, a large population of the U.S. vaccinated, I think is going to be very, very key to getting, um, you know, America back on track, getting things feeling more normal and getting revenues back up. Right. But the caveat there is that these next six months are going to be really, really hard. I mean, we're seeing new restrictions in almost every state. Um, Oregon has is already in its second round of um, COVID restrictions. California is dealing with incredible hospital capacity. I mean, they're at one zero percent capacity. So, so I think, yes, they're feeling hopeful that if they can make it through this winter, this long, dark winter, that they'll be able to come out the other side and then people will, it'll be the roaring 20s, right? All over again. Um, people will want to be out and will want to spend money and will have money to spend. Um, but I think that getting there and I think looking, just looking at the end goal sort of overlooks the journey of getting there. Um, I think they are very, very aware of the fact that it's a long road ahead and I don't think that they're getting their hopes up too high. Well, you know, we've got time for just a, a quick look in at one more of your stories. And this was something that I had really missed uh, in, in scanning the uh, other national outlets that I, I digest uh, daily, which goes to show once again, uh, some of the value that we're trying to highlight here in this segment of uh, reporters really putting their nose to the grindstone. You wrote up um, that the Trump administration made its second request to the Supreme Court to reinstate a rule requiring patients to pick up the abortion medication, the abortion pill, in person at a medical office or hospital. Um, just, you know, in the two minutes or so we have left, what's going on here? Sure. So at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we saw a real push to keep people at home. And even when it came to uh, medical appointments, uh, we saw the rise of telehealth, right? That filled that void of instead of waiting, you know, in a doctor's office, that um, you could have a telehealth visit, you could discuss things with your doctor, um, and they could prescribe things for you if needed. You know, medication goes through the mail every single day. It's kind of not a big deal. Um, but what changed in the beginning of the pandemic in an effort to keep people home is that certain drugs, you know, abortion drugs like mifeprestone, and please forgive me if that's not how you pronounce it, um, 
and other drugs, you know, it's not the only one, um, were suddenly allowed to be sent through the mail without an in-person visit. Now, whether or not you still had to have a, a telehealth visit, you know, that was probably true, um, but it, it made it easier for women, you know, going through something really, really difficult to get the, the medication that they need in the comfort of their home. You know, even putting a barrier, like you have to go see a doctor in person in the middle of a pandemic is sort of a very large, uh, a tall hurdle to jump over for some people. Um, so what we're seeing now is that the Trump administration is trying to reinstate that rule that people have to go in. And their argument was that, you know, a vaccine is coming, our therapeutics are getting better relatively. Um, so women should be required to, to go in for this, this drug. I mean, it's a big decision, right? But the thing is, it's not the only drug that is, uh, that's important, that's all of a sudden being allowed to go through the mail that people don't have to go see a doctor for opioids for starters, which really, really surprised me. You can get those through a telehealth visit and then in the mail. You know, I think there are plenty of drugs out there that you don't want to be able to get on a street corner, right? But you also don't necessarily have to jump through a number of hoops that are only really only there to make it harder to get them. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Elle Myers, thanks once again for joining us here on The Pulse. Thanks, Matt. Happy New Year. 